0: Welcome to the Choose You Now podcast. I'm your host, Juliana Hever, and today we have such a treat. Dr. Dean Ornish is the founder and president of the nonprofit Preventive Medicine Research Institute, or PMRI, and clinical professor of medicine at UCSF and at UCSD. For over 40 years, he has directed clinical research demonstrating for the first time that comprehensive lifestyle changes may begin to reverse progression of even severe coronary heart disease and also early stage prostate cancer, as well as many other chronic diseases. He is a number one New York Times bestselling author of seven books, his three main stage TED.com talks have been viewed by over 7 million people, and the Ornish diet has been rated number one for heart health by a panel of experts at US News and World Report for the past 11 years. Listen in on how this extraordinary pioneering doctor chooses himself in the most powerful of ways. Dr. Dean Ornish, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Oh, Juliana, it's so great to be back. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be of service in such a meaningful way.
0: As you do so amazingly. The last time I saw you was the last time I think I gave a talk live since all of this happened, and that was in Virginia Beach. We were talking at a conference together, but it's been a couple years. So I'm excited to talk to you today. And um, you know, you are a pioneer to the truest definition—a game-changing, risk-taking, paradigm-shifting pioneer, the father of lifestyle medicine. What inspired you in your life to set out on this path?
1: Oh well, that we could spend the whole half hour talking about that, but the the short version is, I got suicidally depressed when I was in college, when I was a first-year uh, student at Rice University back in 1972. And it was a combination of feeling like a classic imposter syndrome where I felt like you know, I was really somehow managed to fool the admissions committee into thinking that I was smart enough to be there and that now that I was with a bunch of really smart kids, it was just a matter of time before they figured out what a big mistake they made in letting me in. But beyond that, I also had this spiritual vision that was more than I could handle at the time, which is that nothing can bring lasting happiness. And the combination of feeling like I was never going to mount to anything, and even if I did, it wouldn't matter. I thought, well, gosh, you know, what's the point? Uh, and I could just take all the meaning out of my life. You know, who cares? So what? Big deal? Nothing matters? Why bother? You know, all the kind of existential angst, but to the nth degree. And the the worst thing about being depressed uh, is that it's a true reality distortion. You really think you're seeing clearly things for the first time that. You think at the time things are bad. They've always been bad. They'll always be bad. And all the times you ever thought otherwise, you were just fooling yourself. And that's where that that hallmark of depression—the sense of helplessness and hopelessness—come from, is that reality distortion. And I think that's part part of the power of darkness in general, is to make us feel like uh, we there's nothing we can do that we're helpless. And and yet, um, you know, even a small candle can drive out the darkness. You know, the light drives out the darkness unless we forget that. Anyway, so I was all set to do myself in, and um, I got so run down, I couldn't sleep for a week straight, that I, um, I got a really bad case of infectious mononucleosis, which uh, probably saved me. I mean, I, I got to the point where I literally couldn't read a headline in a newspaper and tell you a few minutes later what it said. And so my parents came down and saw what a wreck I was, and they took me home to Dallas to um, where I grew up with the intention of getting well enough to kill myself as strong, as, as crazy and strange as that might sound. And meanwhile, my older sister, uh, this was in January of 1973, had been a child of the 60s and had benefited from studying with an ecumenical spiritual teacher named Swami Sachidananda, who parenthetically, um, uh, if you ever saw the Woodstock movie, Open Woodstock. And... Um, and so my parents decided to have a cocktail party for the Swami, which back in 1973 in Dallas was pretty weird. I mean, today in Dallas, it would be pretty weird, but especially back then. And so there's an old saying that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And that was certainly true for me. And in walks this guy, looks like Central Casting's idea of what a Swami should look like, you know, long saffron robes and long white beard and the whole bit. And he started by giving a lecture in our living room and said, uh, nothing can bring lasting happiness, which I'd already figured out, except everyone else was say, oh, no, no, just... You know, get rich and famous and all this stuff, and you'll be happy. And I knew that wasn't true. But I'm looking at him, and, you know, he's glowing, and I'm about to do myself in. I'm like, what am I missing here? And he went on to say what probably to some people sounds like a new age cliche, but it really turned my life around, which is that while nothing can bring lasting happiness, it's our nature to be happy and peaceful until we disturb it. Yeah, there are rare exceptions to that, but by and large, Our happiness and our health and our well-being are not things we have to get from outside ourselves, but rather it's our nature to be that way until we disturb it. And what may be the ultimate irony that, uh, you know, is that not being mindful of that, we often run after all these things that we think are going to bring us happiness and health. uh, And in the process, we disturb what we could have already if we just stop doing that. Uh, my teacher was uh, like to make puns, and you know, people say, "What are you a Hindu?" He'd say, "No, I'm an undo," <laughs> you know, which is the, uh, in kind of homage to him, where the title of our, our new book, uh, "Undo It," uh, came from, uh, is the idea that these these practices, like meditation, for example, at the end of a meditation, when you're feeling more peaceful, he'd say, "Those practices didn't bring you that sense of peace; it was already there. What it did was to help you stop disturbing what was already there, at least temporarily, so you could experience that." peace and well-being more directly. Uh, and yet that may sound like splitting hairs or, you know, parsing words, but the implications are actually quite profound because if it's if we get our peace from outside ourselves, which is what pretty much the whole advertising industry tells us, you know, just buy this product or do this, or in my case, get into medical school and then people will love you and then you'll be happy and then everything's fine. Once you set up that view of the world, he said, however, it turns out you're generally you feel, feel bad until you get at your stress, you know, and then the stakes go way up because it's not just, you know, winning or losing something It's being a winner or a loser in my case. And you feel like winners, people love and losers are all, you know, all alone and isolated. Uh, if, if someone else gets it and you don't, then it, it's even worse and it reinforces this misperception that we live in a, a finite zero sum game, you know, world that the more you get, the lesser is for me and you better get it while you can. It kind of makes it very hyper competitive. Uh, And if you don't get it, you feel bad. And if you get it, then there's this moment where it feels very seductive, like, ah, I got it. I'm happy or I'm healthy, but it doesn't last. It's soon followed either by either now what, it's never enough or so what, big deal. It doesn't really provide that lasting sense of meaning that uh, we thought it might. And so um, people say things like, you know, the letdown that comes from accomplishing something is so great. I always make sure I've got a, a dozen projects going on at the same time. And then just, I can shift my attention to that. And so what what I learned from the Swami is that, first of all, that we can quiet down at the end of our meditation when you're feeling more peaceful to remind yourself, to literally remind yourself that the meditation or whatever you're doing, whether it's prayer or secular, didn't bring you that sense of peace, but rather it was there already. And then you can stay grounded in that peace and then go out in the world and accomplish even more without getting stressed and sick in the process. And so in my case, when I felt like I had to get and do well and organic chemistry so that I could get into medical school so that, you know, I could love myself and other people could love me because I'd be a doctor. I couldn't function at all. You know, I literally couldn't function at all. I couldn't, like I said, I couldn't read a headline in a newspaper and tell you a minute later what it said. But when I became more inwardly defined, just getting little glimpses of that. And he said, by the way, and eat a plant-based diet and meditate and exercise and and spend more time with your loved ones, which really became the best, the essence of my lifestyle medicine program. uh, I began to, to, I mean, at first I couldn't even sit still long enough to meditate. I would meditate while walking around, but I began to get glimpses of that. And there was so powerful in transforming my life that I went back to school, transferred to the University of Texas at Austin, you know, graduated first in my class, gave the baccalaureate. And I say that not to brag, but to make the point that I experienced both ends of that spectrum. I, you know, totally dysfunctional or doing, performing at a really high level. And the difference was that the more inwardly defined I became, the less, anxiety and stress i had and the more i could function at a high level and so later when i was in went to medical school and i was learning how to do bypass surgery with dr michael debakey the heart surgeon who was one of the people invented the procedure Uh, we cut people open we bypassed their clogged arteries he'd tell them they were cured and more often than not they'd go home and do all the things that had caused the problem in the first place and so then we cut them open again sometimes multiple times and so for me that became a metaphor that we were literally bypassing the problem without also treating the cause and he, you know, he was also kind of a, a a tyrant in the OR in the operating room. You know, he'd like stick your fingers if you didn't move them fast enough. And
0: he said, oh, "What year are you,
1: son?" I said, "I'm a, starting my third year." He goes, "Damn, it's going to be so much harder to bust you out of here with all these weird ideas you have." <laughs> and, um, in fact, he called me actually just about four years ago. I hadn't heard from him in decades, and he said, "Hey, Dean, this is Mike DeBakey," and he had a very distinctive Louisiana accent, which I recognized immediately after all these years. I said, "To what do I owe this honor?" He said, "Well," You know those weird ideas that I used to give you such a hard time about when you were my medical student. I said, "Oh yeah, oh, yeah I remember really well." He goes, "That's what's kept me alive all these years." <laughs> he said, wow. "I'm 99 years old. I, I, uh, my wife got interested in your work, and I've been doing it now for decades. And I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to live that much longer. And I just wanted you to know, just before I die, that you know, really, really made an important difference in my life. So you just never know if you live long enough, things, uh, things change. But one of the things I learned from the Swami is that when you know change is hard, but if you're hurting enough." in my case, from being depressed or from someone else from having heart disease or chest pain or whatever, suddenly the idea becomes more appealing of changing. And then part of the reason why I've spent so many, you know, four and a half decades doing research to kind of redefine what's possible for people. You know, we showed for the first time that heart disease could be reversed. At that time, it was thought impossible. In fact, everything we've done, people thought was impossible before we did it. And part of the value of research is to redefine what's possible. If it's properly done with, you know, the, with uh, the best collaborators and published in the leading peer-reviewed journals, we now know that heart disease often is reversible. And so that's given millions of people new hope and new choices, and enables them to say, "Gosh, you know, this is kind of weird stuff. You know, eating a plant-based diet and meditating. I mean, really, and talking about my feelings. Please, you know. But I don't know. I'm hurting so bad. Let me try this weird stuff. Just like I was hurting so bad when I was so depressed, I was ready to try anything." And then because these biological mechanisms are so dynamic, most people feel so much better so quickly when they make these changes. In fact, paradoxically, oftentimes it's easier to make big changes in a lot of things at the same time like I did or like the patients in our studies do. Right. It's, it's so
0: amazing because your, your research library is beyond prolific. Like you've shown this potential of lifestyle medicine to not only reverse severe coronary disease, reverse type two diabetes, reverse slow, stop the progression of early stage non aggressive prostate cancer, on and on and on, dementia, autoimmune disease, depression and anxiety. Can you discuss, because despite what healthcare professionals are taught, this approach seems to be this one size fits all solution via these similar underlying Biological mechanisms of action, or like as you describe in the book, you propose this new unified theory in your book, Undo It, of course, uh, the unified theory of health and healing that is quote unquote radically simple yet powerfully proven. Why do these same lifestyle changes have so many powerful different effects?
1: Yeah, well, that's a good question. That was really the reason why I wrote my wife and I and co authored this book called Undo It, uh, which is Like, why is it, when I kind of reflect back on all these decades, that these same lifestyle changes can affect and reverse often case oftentimes reverse the progression of the most common and and costly chronic diseases, which kind of flies in the face of the trend of personalized medicine where where you, you know, give different things to different people. And I realized that because even though I was trained, like most doctors, to view heart disease and type two diabetes and prostate and breast cancer and Alzheimer's as being fundamentally different diseases, different diagnoses, and different treatments, I realize that they all share the same underlying biological mechanisms. As you mentioned, chronic inflammation, oxidative stress, changes in the microbiome, and telomeres, and gene expression, and angiogenesis, and overstimulation of the sympathetic nervous system, and immune function, and so on. And each one of these mechanisms, in turn, is directly influenced by what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get, and how much love and support we have, or to reduce it to its essence, to, uh, by the way, the book starts with a one of my favorite quotes, which was from uh, Albert Einstein, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. So mm-hmm. it's eat well, move more, stress less, love more. That's it. And uh, and and these same lifestyle changes, in, in all of our studies, it was the same intervention, including a randomized trial we're doing to see if we can stop or reverse the progression of early-stage Alzheimer's disease. And the reason is because they all share these mechanisms. It also helps explain why you'll often find the same patient will have what are called comorbidities. They'll have heart disease and type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure and high cholesterol and overweight and so on uh, because they're all just different manifestations of the same thing. Or whole countries, you know, in, in Asia 50 years ago, they had very low rates of all these chronic diseases and they still they started to, until they started to, you know, eat like us and live like us and die like us. And now more people are dying in, in third world countries from uh, heart disease and type 2 diabetes than AIDS, and malaria combined. And it's diverting a lot of resources from things that really do require drugs like AIDS, TB, and malaria to things that can be largely prevented or even reversed through uh, changing lifestyle. And so, um, you know, we, we found this work. And then I thought that would change medical practice. And to some degree, it did. But I realized that, you know, if you, re- you really need to change reimbursement, it's not enough to have good science. And so, uh, after many years of review, uh, Medicare began covering my program in 2011. Um, and created a new benefit category to do so. And so we've been training hospitals and clinics and physician groups, and it's working. You know, 94% of the people finish all 72 hours of training. You know, the idea that small changes are easy and big changes are hard turns out not to be true, that when you make big changes, you feel so much better so quickly. In most cases, if you have heart disease, for example, your chest pain goes away or under your doctor's supervision, you may be able to reduce or get off medications that you were told you'd have to take the rest of your life to lower your cholesterol or blood pressure or blood sugar and so on, uh, but because the angina tends to go away, most people become pain-free in just a few weeks. You know, for someone who can't, you know, walk across the street without getting chest pain or make love with their their partner or play with their kids or go back to work without getting chest pain, and now they can do all those things, they say things like, you know, uh, I like eating junk food, but not that much, you know, because yeah. what I gain is so much more than what I give up. It reframes the reason for making changes from fear of dying, which is really not sustainable for very long, to joy and pleasure and love and, and feeling good, which are. And then just last October, uh, Medicare agreed to extend the coverage of my reversing heart disease program when it's offered by Zoom now uh, in patients' own homes. So now that you don't have to live near one of the hospitals or clinics we've trained, you can live in a rural area, a food desert. If you've got Internet access and, a, uh, and, and FedEx will deliver it to you as we send you food for five weeks as well. Um, you're eligible. And so now we can help reduce health disparities and health inequities. And so, by the way, if anyone's listening to this and you or someone you love uh, has heart disease, go to our site, ornish.com, and there's information on how you can uh, get information on how to sign up for our program. And Medicare and Aetna and many other insurance companies are covering it when it's offered virtually. And now you can do it in the privacy of your own home. You don't have to drive anywhere or do anything. We'll send you five weeks' worth of food, 21 meals a week, uh, plus snacks, for five weeks uh, uh, so that it makes it really easy to make this transition. And, uh, you know, again, for me, having seen what a powerful difference these changes can make, it's very exciting to me that now we can help even more people. And ultimately we can help people. And once we're doing it by Zoom, we can do it around the world and not just in the U.S.
0: That's extraordinary. What a gift to the world. I would be remiss in not asking you about uh, fat, basically. I am I have this very passionate stance on macro confusion and how it's the source of so much obfuscation in the world and how people are just so confused. And even researchers get confused because we're comparing, you know, like a a lentil stew with a breakfast cereal, you know, and 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 when you're looking at just macronutrients, but you were like the low fat guy back when, and you were, you know, defending and talking about that. I'm curious how that has evolved for you and and what you would say about all that now.
1: Well, it's unfortunate because I was never really the low fat guy. That I got portrayed that way because I was, you know, debating Dr. Atkins for many years, and uh, he was the low carb guy. So I became the low fat guy, um, which is unfortunate because it's never been just about fat. It's about so many things that you know that what you include in your diet is as important as uh, what you exclude. Uh, There are hundreds of thousands of protective substances in fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes and soy and so on that have anti cancer, anti heart disease, and even anti-aging property. There was an article that came out in the Lancet just last week that said low-fat diet, low, uh, Mediterranean diet better than low-fat diet for preventing heart disease or treating heart disease. And when you actually look at the study, what they call the low-fat diet went from, uh, you know, it, it was hardly, um, you know, low at all. It was, uh, uh, it went from, uh, let me just look at my notes here, from 36 to 32% fat, hardly any reduction, mm-hmm. But you know, as opposed to closer to 10 to 15% fat, which is what we're doing. But also, they you know they gave frozen you know food and and uh, canned food to the uh, quote low fat group and fresh food to the experimental group and and even with all that they found that there were no significant differences at all in women and when they looked at men when they looked at each of the things separately whether it was you know um, heart attacks or you know anything there was no difference there either if they combined everything together it included revascularization which seems to have driven that. They found a significant difference, but again, only uh, but if they looked at everything individually, there was no significant um, improvement in, uh, in any of those measures, whether it was heart attacks, death from cardiovascular causes, death from any cause, and so on. They found something similar in the, in the PREDIMED study too. So mm-hmm. telling people what you want to hear, whether it's an Atkins diet or a Mediterranean diet, makes it much easier to get these things uh, taken up and published. But, you know, again, part of the value of the science is to show what really is what's real. Again, it's not about low fat. It's low fat in the context of a whole foods diet that's uh, as close as possible as you find in nature. You know, I mean, Twinkies are vegan and low fat, but they're not healthy for you.
0: Exactly. Thank you. And then these headlines take off and then everyone gets more and more confused. And studies like that were published last week, it just keeps perpetuating that problem. So I love hearing you talk about it. And obviously your results are so clearly, they just speak for themselves. In your book, you know, you've know, you gotten into this whole beautiful part of the love more, and I would love to talk a little bit about that because the whole concept of choose you now is about that, right? Choosing you and being the best version of yourself so that you could do all the good in the world and everyone around you. And you talk extensively about love and connection and community in the amazing book that you wrote with Anne, Undo It!, um, and you you talk about the study that shows that the more time you spend on Facebook and social media, that the more depressed you are. Can you talk about the idea of real intimacy versus what we see in social media and the authenticity that people present?
1: Yeah. I mean, the idea is, you know, the real epidemic is not just heart disease or diabetes or COVID or anything like that. It's really uh, depression and isolation, uh, as we talked about earlier, in part because of the breakdown of the social networks. They used to give people a sense of love and connection and community. Uh, study after study has shown that people who are lonely and depressed and isolated, which I think is, you know, so common in our culture, are three to 10 times more likely to get sick and die prematurely when compared to those who have a sense of love and connection and community. And I don't know anything in medicine that has that kind of impact, in part because you're more likely to abuse yourself when you're feeling lonely and depressed. You know, people say things like, you know, when I get depressed, I... I I eat a lot of fat. It coats my nerves and numbs the pain, or food fills that void, or you know, uh, uh, opioids numb the pain. We have this opioid epidemic, and people are dying from it at an unprecedented rate, or um, people are drinking more alcohol and using other drugs than ever to numb their pain, or video games to distract themselves from pain. More money spent on video games and movies by about a factor of threefold now, uh, or working all the time is a more socially acceptable way. Or I've got patients who said, I've got. 20 friends in this pack of cigarettes and they're always there for me and nobody else is. You're going to take away my 20 friends. What are you going to give me? You know? And so I've learned that it's not enough to just give people information. If it were, nobody would smoke. It's not like I'd say, Hey, Julianne, did you know that smoking is bad for you? And go, Oh gosh, I didn't know that. I'll quit today. You know, it's like, it's on every package of cigarettes. And yet um, information is not enough. And focusing on the behavior is not enough. We need to work at a deeper level. Uh, a level where we're focusing not just on the behavior, but what really motivates those behaviors. And to a large, to, to a larger degree than people often realize, it's these um, the sense of loneliness and depression. And so, you know, if you grew up in a family, uh, an extended family 50 years ago, or a neighborhood with three or three generations of people, um, they know you. They don't just know your Facebook profile. They know where you messed up. They know the time you got suicidal depressed, in my case, or whatever it happens to be, and... You know that they know, and they know that you know that they know. But there's something really powerful about, you know, I see you, I, you know, like an avatar, which is really from an African proverb. I see all of you, not just your, your, your good stuff, but I see all of you, and I'm still here for you. I still love you. You know, I'm still, I care about you. And there's something really primal about being seen fully as opposed to, you know, the studies that show that the more time you spend on Facebook, the more depressed you are because it looks like everybody has this perfect life but you. You know, here we are in front of the Eiffel Tower with our perfect family and here we are on our perfect, you know, uh, kid graduating from college or whatever. People don't post their, their suicidal tendencies or their depression for the most part. And so in our support groups, they're not really about helping people stay on the diet. They're really about recreating that sense of um, safety and community, you know, that, that, you know, we encourage people to what goes in the group stays in the group and to create a sense of safety because you can only be intimate to the degree you can make yourself vulnerable and open your heart. And you can only do that to the degree you feel safe. It's one of the reasons why being in a committed monogamous relationship is so fun, even though it may sound like, oh my God, that's like the ball and chain. Uh, I guess it can be. But also if you have two people who are in love with each other, like my wife and I, And we say we are totally committed to each other and we can and it's not even binary it's like as you get committed you the heart opens up more and more and more you realize there are infinite levels of intimacy as you get feel safer and safer and more and more trusting you open up wider and wider and the more intimate it is the more joyful and erotic and pleasurable and and fun it is you know uh it's just the opposite of people thinking oh it's kind of boring it actually just is infinitely interesting Uh, instead of having, you know, the same kind of a more superficial relationship with the different people, it's having this infinitely variable relationship with the same person, which is amazing. And so the support groups are designed for people to say, hey, you know, I may look like um, I'm doing great, but I'm not, you know, or I may look like the perfect dad, but my kid's having problems or whatever it happens to be. And someone else can say, you know what, Instead of saying, oh, well, have you thought about fixing this? It's, it's more like, hey, that must be awful. You know, I'm having some problems too. Here are my problems, you know. And then it doesn't fix whatever problem it is, but it fixes the isolation or the shame around that. And it empowers people to say, oh, gosh, you know, this is really meaningful that other people, I can really connect with them at such a deep level. And, you know, even the word healing comes from the root to make whole. You know, yoga is from the Sanskrit meaning to yoke, to unite, union. These are really uh, old ideas that we're rediscovering.
0: So eat well, move more, stress less, love more. How do you love to implement these tenets into your life? Clearly you have this beautiful and inspiring love story with Anne, but what else does this look like for you?
1: Well, you know, they say you teach what you want to learn. And so I um, I, I am learning to do the things that I've been teaching others to do for so many years, especially in my, in my relationship with Anne, um, that uh, there's always a lot of fear when you make yourself vulnerable. And if anyone has ever been abused or hurt in the past – you know it's the heart goes gosh it's not safe you know and so we tend to um isolate ourselves from other people just as a way of trying to avoid getting hurt but then not realizing that the fact that we're isolating ourselves is actually causing us more problems than getting hurt and you know one of the things about deciding not to kill myself very intentionally when i was 19 that we talked about earlier is that i decided you know if i'm going to live i want to really live fully i don't want to live a halfway life i'm going to do a, I'm going to try as many different things as I can because I need to know for myself what's real and what isn't. I'm going to do a lot of stupid stuff. I'm going to make a lot of stupid mistakes. And I'm going to be really proud of all those mistakes, you know, because there's a lot of wisdom that comes from doing something that doesn't work and learning from that. Then you know, you don't have to wonder. You know, as a doctor, I often take care of people who are at the end of life and they generally don't regret what they did. They generally regret what they didn't do because if you do something and it doesn't work, then you learn something. There's something really powerful from that. But if you don't do it, you just have regret and wonder. And all the studies that I've done, as I mentioned, were thought impossible at the time, including the study we're doing now on Alzheimer's. And it gave me the courage to try to do things that I wouldn't have done otherwise, because I thought like, well, what's the worst that could happen? I'm going to learn something really interesting. And so I would uh, encourage everyone to you know, consider taking more risks in your life, because ultimately that's what brings meaning is being able to Uh, do something that can really help other people that no one had done before.
0: Thank you for all of your extraordinary work in this world. You are such a gift, and I am so grateful that you took the time to talk to us today.
1: Uh, Well, back at you, and thank you so much. I'm really grateful.
0: Eat well, move more, stress less, love more. So inspiring. Dr. Dean Ornish, a true pioneer of the greatest kind. If you are inspired and enjoy the Choose You Now podcast, become a member of our Patreon page, patreon.com slash choose you now. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash choose you now to have access to exclusive content. Find out more from Dr. Dean Ornish on telomeres this week. Please subscribe to the show, rate and review us on iTunes, and send us an email with your questions and comments at choose you at gmail.com. For nutrition services and more information, visit me at plantbaseddietitian.com. I invite you to choose yourself now, and I'm signing off with lots of leafy green love.